Shortly after the resurrection, Jesus was walking down the road to Emmaus with two men who were deeply discouraged. Two of his disciples who'd embraced him as the long-awaited Messiah right up until the point that he was arrested and crucified by the Romans. Jesus' sudden death on the cross had crushed their hopes, and now not knowing who it was that was walking and talking with them on the road, they confessed to him in a tone of despair, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. These two disciples are obviously disillusioned. In response to their grief, the Lord Jesus says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Before revealing himself to these men as the risen Messiah, Jesus gives them an in-depth Bible study, and what a Bible study that must have been. Jesus opened up the Scriptures to them. He showed them how every part of the Old Testament points towards them, how the Old Testament prefigures the redemptive work He had come to accomplish on earth by living the perfect life, by dying on the cross for the sins of His people, and by rising from the dead. Now we're not told in that text just exactly what text Jesus chose to exposit, but I can't help but wonder whether Daniel chapter 6 was one of them. This is one of the best-known chapters in the entire Bible, and it is a chapter that prefigures Jesus' life and death and resurrection in an absolutely remarkable way. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you did bring it, open it up to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, and I'm going to read once again from God's holy and inerrant word. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. The king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document, so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and and plea before his God. They came near and said to the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, 
the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king, it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded. Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions, and the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at daybreak, the king rose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was and cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. They have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad. He commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. The king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. Before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, even the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are a number of different ways that we could approach Daniel 6 this morning, but I want to focus our attention today on the wonderful way in which this well-known story of God's Word prepares us for the coming of Jesus Christ and how it prefigures His earthly ministry. The prophet Daniel is what we call in biblical studies a type of the Lord Jesus. He is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ in his person and work. And as you read the Old Testament, as you dig deeply into the Old Testament and examine it through the lens of New Testament revelation, you begin to see many different types, many different ways in which these ancient texts point us forward in redemptive history and prepare us for the coming of Jesus into the world. St. Augustine once observed that the Old Testament lies hidden, or the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and that the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. Martin Luther, speaking along the same lines, once said that the Bible is the cradle wherein the Christ is laid. 
Both Luther and Augustine were 100% right in their assessment. This morning, I'd invite you to put on your New Testament goggles and observe with me five different ways the story of Daniel in the lion's den prefigures the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Five ways today in which this inspired narrative instructs us in the truth of the Christian gospel. That's where we're headed together this morning with God's help and as we begin to dig into this wonderful part of God's Word, this very well-known story. I would ask you to notice, first of all, how Daniel's righteous character foreshadows the righteousness of Christ. Studying through the book of Daniel, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we've had an opportunity to observe the godly character of this man from the time he was a young teenager to the time he was an old man, an entire lifetime of faithful living. Over 70 years have passed now between chapter 1 and chapter 6. Several different kings have come and gone from the throne, and one of the most powerful empires in the world has bitten the dust. And yet here is Daniel the prophet, now in his mid-80s and still going strong for the glory of God. In fact, it would seem here that Daniel has come out of retirement in order to serve the new Persian king named Darius. A great deal of water has gone under the bridge in these chapters. Many different things that have changed since Daniel first arrived in the great city of Babylon. But one thing that hasn't changed over the years is Daniel's character and Daniel's commitment to God. You'd think that over the course of 70 years in a pagan land, far from Jerusalem, far from the temple, far from the priests of Israel, that some of the ungodliness of this culture would have seeped into Daniel's mind and heart and would have caused him to make compromises. We might expect that at this stage of the game, Daniel had lost the idealism of his of his youth and that he'd begun to make numerous moral and ethical shortcuts, perhaps justifying them under the guise of survival, political expediency, or maybe just a more comfortable life. Because this is the kind of thing we've come to expect from public figures in our own culture and society. Men and women who usually have one or two skeletons in the back of the closet, deeply buried and hidden from the public eye. And every now and then we turn on the news or we read the headlines about a moral or ethical failure on the part of some politician or celebrity, and we're really not all that shocked. In the past few weeks here in Ontario, we've seen this kind of things in the news. Old Facebook posts and old tweets that have suddenly resurfaced in the course of the election race, much to the embarrassment of those who posted them. Dig deep enough, friends, we can probably find dirt on just about everyone, but it would seem that after 70 years of exile and civil service, this man named Daniel didn't have anything to hide. Verse 4 of our text, we're told the remarkable fact that his political enemies could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. How wonderful it would be if that statement could be made of each and every one of us who knows and loves Jesus Christ. Daniel's enemies tried their very best to dig up some dirt that could be used to discredit or to blackmail him, but Daniel's character was unassailable. His reputation was untarnished, so much so that this new Persian king had not killed or deposed him in the regime change, but had rather given him one of the top government jobs available. At this time in history, we're told that Daniel was one of the most powerful men in the Persian kingdom, whose job it was to oversee the provincial governors on the king's behalf. 
And so it's evident here in the opening verses of our chapter, Daniel is one of the most trusted and respected men in the land. He's a leader whose track record of integrity stands for itself. A man who, according to verse 3, was about to receive an even greater promotion. In effect, Daniel is now on track to become the prime minister of Persia, a leader in the empire who is second only to the king. He's obviously earned the trust and the affection of the new king. And the reason for this is given in verse 3, where we're told that an excellent spirit was in him. You know, friends, it's interesting to observe just about every one of our biblical heroes has a black smear of one kind or another on their record. We know, for example, that Abraham lied, that Jacob schemed, and that Moses lost his temper. And that David committed adultery, Job flirted with blasphemy, Solomon turned to idolatry. The Apostle Peter struggled with legalism. Biblical record is brutally honest and almost every Bible character we could name this morning has an obvious flaw in their record. But when we come to this prophet named Daniel, nothing negative, nothing incriminating is ever said about him in God's word. He's presented to us, the readers, in an almost totally positive light. A man widely known for his excellent spirit. A man who is later on praised in the book of Hebrews as an example of enduring faith. Back in chapter 5, you'll recall, I, I hope that the queen mother has drawn attention to Daniel's excellent spirit. And this is now a recurring theme in the book. It's a statement that relates, first of all, to Daniel's character. It is also a statement about the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in Daniel's life. Daniel's life, Daniel's ministry is marked by the visible presence of the Spirit. Even the pagans that know nothing about the true God could see that this man was different from everyone else. He was a unique person. He was specially endued with God's power and wisdom. Prophet Daniel is presented to us in Scripture as a man of sterling character, a man whose entire life was permeated by the Spirit's presence, and in this way he points us forward in time towards the Lord Jesus, the only sinless man who has ever lived and walked on this fallen planet. The sinless nature of Jesus Christ is essential to our salvation. This fact is emphasized many times in the New Testament. For example, 1 Peter 2.22, where we're told that Jesus committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth. The New Testament authors also emphasize how Jesus' life and ministry was marked by the visible presence of the Holy Spirit, even as the prophet Isaiah predicted that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so it's no coincidence that when Jesus stood to speak in the synagogue of Nazareth, the very first words that came out of His mouth were words about the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news. And whenever Jesus preached God's truth to the people, they recognized that something was different about Him. He possessed a unique authority that distinguished Him from the scribes and the Pharisees just as the prophet Daniel was distinguished from the astrologers and the magicians and the Chaldeans. From the very beginning to the very end, Jesus' ministry was permeated by the Spirit, a fact that Peter would later emphasize when he says in Acts chapter 10 that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and that He went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil for God was with Him. 
Now friends, we know that in reality, the prophet Daniel had a sin nature. That Daniel committed many sins that are not recorded specifically in this book. Daniel was a sinner, just like you and I are sinners, standing in need of God's grace. He wasn't a perfect man. He wasn't a sinless man. But even though that's true, Daniel's exemplary character, Daniel's spirit-filled ministry, points us forward in time towards the arrival of the true Messiah, the only perfect man, the only sinless man, upon whose shoulders the government of God would rest. And as we look this morning at the godliness of this man named Daniel, it should cause us to reflect on our own character and to ask whether we, through our daily lives, are pointing men and women towards the Savior. Well, Daniel prefigures the Lord Jesus and his righteous character. Secondly, we see in verses 4 to 9 of our text that Daniel prefigures the Lord in the kind of opposition that he faced. At the age of 80, we might hope that most of Daniel's troublesome days were behind him and that he could look forward to smooth sailing into the twilight years of life. In reality, Daniel's whole life and ministry was punctuated by times of trouble and persecution. As a young teenager, Daniel had been forcibly taken from his home and family in Israel. On more than one occasion, his life and his ministry hung in the balance. Back in chapter 1, you'll recall that a much younger Daniel put his life on the line by refusing to eat the king's food, that he'd also taken great risks on numerous occasions by delivering unfavorable messages to the king. But now as an old man, Daniel is once again subject to persecution as evil men rise up and plot against him. Though it's fairly obvious in this chapter that Daniel enjoyed the favor and affection of the king, it is also clear that he had some very powerful enemies in the government who wanted nothing more than to take him out. On the one hand, these men were motivated by personal ambition and envy since Daniel was about to be promoted to a position they wanted and that they probably felt entitled to have. On the other hand, these men were also motivated by a sense of racial superiority as we discover in verse 13. To these powerful and prejudiced leaders, Daniel was little more than a foreigner and a slave in the empire. He was not someone that they wanted to have as a boss. And so in their envy and pride and prejudice, they gathered together in order to plot against Daniel, first of all, looking for indiscretions that they could bring to the king in order to discredit him. They thought that they could dig up some dirt on Daniel from the past, but when Daniel came up squeaky clean, they embraced a new and a more sinister approach. Verse 5, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. The prophet Daniel was not private when it came to his faith. He was publicly known to be a deeply spiritual man, and since they couldn't blackmail him, they decided to set him up, to put Daniel into a position where he'd be forced to choose between loyalty to his king and loyalty to his God. Entrapment was the name of the game here, and so these men go to King Darius with flattering words, proposing that the king himself king assert himself and consolidate his power by declaring himself to be the high priest for 30 days. In effect, these men were suggesting a symbolic religious and political action that Darius would set himself up as the only mediator between his subjects and their gods and that any petition to the gods would need to go through him instead of through the priests. 
Now, this idea probably sounds a bit strange to most of us, but in its historical context, it probably sounded like very wise advice to Darius. Here is a practical way that he, the new king, could show the people of Persia that he was tight with their gods, that he was a veritable demigod on earth. And so King Darius allows himself to be manipulated through flattery. But these men also lie to his face. For in verse 7 of the text, they tell Darius that all of the prefects, satraps, counselors, and governors are in agreement with their plan. And we know that that's not true. One of the top men in the kingdom is not even there. And then finally, to seal Daniel's fate, to be rid of him once and for all, these advisors suggest a gruesome penalty for anyone who dares disobey the king's edict to be thrown alive into a pit of lions. Well, the trap has now been set. The king has taken the bait. Unable to discredit him, Daniel's enemies developed a plot to ensnare him. And this whole scenario ought to remind us of what happened many years later to the Lord Jesus. As you know, Jesus' entire ministry was permeated by incredible opposition and persecution, facing the assault of Satan at the beginning of his ministry, facing the hostility of men at the end, all the while proclaiming a message of repentance that was deeply unsettling to the religious leaders. On one occasion, Jesus preaching in the synagogue provoked so much hostility and anger that the members of his own community tried to run him off a cliff. In ancient Persia, Daniel's enemies felt that they were superior in the same way the scribes and the Pharisees thought that they were superior to Jesus. After all, he was just an ordinary carpenter who had not gone to seminary. He had not received formal rabbinic training. They felt that Jesus was unworthy, that he was unqualified to teach the people. But at the same time, they were intensely jealous of Jesus because he taught the crowds with an authority that they did not have because he could perform miracles and signs that they themselves were unable to do. And faced with the growing popularity of Jesus among the common people, the whispering that he might indeed be the promised Messiah, the religious leaders did everything that they could do to discredit him, at first claiming that he disregarded the law of Moses, that he undermined the traditions of the fathers. They wanted to portray Jesus as a demon-possessed lawbreaker, but when those efforts failed, They followed the same dark course of action as Daniel's enemies, plotting against him in secret, setting him up as an enemy of the state. And so they bribed Judas to to betray the Lord with a kiss. They brought in false witnesses to testify against him. They accused him of treason before the Roman authorities. And just as King Darius knew that Daniel was innocent and tried to find a way to release him, so Pilate, the governor, knew that Jesus was innocent and tried for a time to find a way to release him, even offering to release the murderer Barabbas if they would let Jesus walk free. Parallels between Daniel's adversity and Jesus' adversity are striking. And in this way, the suffering of Daniel and the plot that was hatched against him points us forward in time to the unjust suffering of our Lord. It's also a reminder for us this morning that we as Christians who desire to please God and to live godly lives in this world will face opposition and persecution. In this world you will have trouble, Jesus said. But be not dismayed, for I have overcome the world. Well, Daniel's character and Daniel's adversity point us forward towards the coming of Christ. But the third way that Daniel foreshadows Jesus' ministry is his commitment to prayer, a part of the plot we have not yet mentioned. 
It was well known among Daniel's enemies that he was a man devoted to prayer, and in their scheme to destroy him, this habitual and predictable pattern, this part of Daniel's regular piety, was an essential factor in the plan. Back in chapter 2, you'll remember that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced a very similar dilemma, that these three men were commanded by Nebuchadnezzar to bow down to a golden image and thus to violate their biblical convictions. Now in chapter 6, the situation is slightly different. Daniel is not commanded to do something Scripture forbids. Rather, he is forbidden to do something that the Scripture commands. These are two slightly different scenarios where faithfulness to God required disobedience to the state. Now a few weeks ago in Daniel chapter 2, we spoke about the subject of civil disobedience. Once again, I would remind you this morning... Under normal circumstances, we Christians ought to obey the governing authorities. We ought to be the most law-abiding and respectful citizens in the land. Generally speaking, our attitude towards the state should be one of respect and submission, recognizing our elected officials as men and women placed there by God for the good of our society. But at the same time, the Bible is also clear, our obedience to the state is not absolute. Our highest allegiance is always to God and to His Word. And so in those situations, when our government would require us to do something that would violate the clear teaching of God's Word, or else forbid us from obeying something God's Word commands, we have no choice but to engage in civil disobedience, saying yes to the Lord, and then facing the consequences of the state, whatever they may be. Now, in the case of Daniel's three friends, faithfulness to God meant being thrown alive into a fiery furnace. In Daniel's case, it meant being thrown alive into a den of lions. As I said a few weeks ago, only time will tell what it might mean for believers in Canada as our government moves further and further away from its biblical moorings and enacts laws that go contrary to the will of God as revealed in the Word of God. As believers, we must be respectful towards the governing authorities. At the same time, we must be courageous enough to draw a line in the sand and to say with Peter and the apostles, we must obey God rather than men. Well, up to this point in his life, Daniel has not been permitted to pray openly to the one true God. And as we know, prayer is one of the privileges and duties of every Christian believer. In Scripture, prayer is not merely a nice suggestion from God. It is a command from God. A command that is implied in the Old Testament and made explicit in the New Testament. But now under the influence of these evil men, the naive king, an arbitrary law has been passed forbidding what God commands in His Word. A law that effectively turns the king into a priest and suggests that he is in some measure divine. And so this ancient law actually takes us beyond the sin of prayerlessness and into a violation of the first commandment, treating an ordinary man as though he were in the place of the Almighty God. Well, the trap's been set. For the next 30 days, the prophet Daniel is going to need to make a difficult choice either to obey the Lord and die or to disobey the Lord and live. Look again at chapter at verse 10 to see what he, he does. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. 
You know, as I reflected on Daniel's situation in my study this week, I couldn't help but wonder what I would have done if I was in Daniel's situation that day and what we would have done as a church family if we were in Daniel's shoes. That is a question we need to think about very seriously this morning. Is prayer really that important to us? Is it important enough to me as a Christian for us as a church that we would rather die or go to prison than to give it up for 30 days? thought about that question a lot this week. And I have a notion that many of us here in North America, for many of us, this would be an absolute no-brainer. If you and I were in Daniel's situation, almost certainly the blinds on our houses would close, the prayer meetings at our churches would stop for 30 days, and then when the storm blew over, we'd be back to business as usual. Now that seems terrible to say, but I think we know it's true. The vast majority of us would choose safety over prayer. Even worse, however, is to, is to ask a slightly different question. Whether such a law, if it was ever passed here in Canada, would make the least bit of difference in the lives of the average Christian believer or in the average church family. Sinclair Ferguson, in his excellent commentary on the book of Daniel, says this, We may well ask ourselves in this context if it would make any substantial difference in our lives or in the lives of our church fellowship if prayer were banned for the next 30 days. Perhaps in many instances, the answer would be both embarrassing and startling, for prayer has become a neglected discipline and a forgotten art in many Christian churches. Is it not strange that there appears to have been a more vociferous protest about our right to pray in public schools than there has been a prophetic protest about the deadly prayerlessness in our churches and homes? Could it be that Satan does not normally encourage Darius-style legislation here in the West because he has no need to do so? Only elsewhere where Christians have learned to pray like Daniel, where Christians have learned to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, has that tactic been found necessary. Now, I can't speak for you this morning, friends, but that statement pierced me this week as I reflected on my own devotion to prayer, as I reflected to the devotion of this church to prayer, as I reflected on the devotion of the Canadian church to prayer. You know, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once called the prayer meeting the boiler room of the church. It was the most important meeting aside from corporate worship that the people of God could engage in. It was the boiler room of the church. In my younger years growing up, I remember corporate prayer being a regular and non-negotiable part of our week. I grew up with Wednesday night prayer meeting, but today it is tragic to observe that many evangelical churches don't have a prayer meeting at all. Not on Wednesday night, not on every, any other night of the week. And equally tragic, I think, is the fact that in the few churches that still do have a prayer meeting, it is generally speaking the most poorly attended meeting of the week. You know, friends, it's not usually a problem to get Christians together when there's food. It's not usually a problem to get Christians together when there is fellowship and entertainment. It is almost always a problem to get Christians together for the purpose of prayer. That is not a comfortable reality to reflect on this morning. But if prayer was legally banned in this country for the next 30 days, I am quite sure that many of us would get very angry on our Facebook pages, but I'm not nearly as confident that it would make a practical difference in most of our lives and in most of the churches across this land. And that ought to cut us 
and convict us to the very core. May God in His mercy and grace forgive us of the sin of prayerlessness. May He make us once again into a people devoted to prayer like our brother Daniel. Very clearly in this text, we see the priority of prayer in Daniel's life and we see also his unique manner in coming before the Lord. We're told in our text that Daniel liked to pray facing the city of Jerusalem. And although this is not in any sense a biblical requirement for prayer, Daniel had very good reasons for doing it. This part of Daniel's practice goes back to the words of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 when the new temple was being dedicated to the Lord. And on that memorable occasion, King Solomon prayed on behalf of the people, anticipating a future day when they would be exiled to a foreign land. And here's what he says. Praying to God, Solomon says, If they repent with all of their mind and with all of their heart in the lands of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you towards their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. By facing in the direction of Jerusalem, Daniel was identifying with God's covenant people, even though at this moment he was living very far away from the promised land. No, I find it amazing. After all of these years, after all of these decades in Babylon, Daniel hasn't forgotten who he is. He's a son of the living God. He's a member of God's covenant people. Secondly, we see here in the text that Daniel was accustomed to praying with the window open, an indication in this, in this context that Daniel was not ashamed to be associated with the true and living God. For the prophet Daniel, prayer was part of his public witness, and we should not read into the open window any hint of self-righteousness or conceitedness which would later become an earmark of the scribes and the Pharisees. Daniel was not opening windows in order to draw attention to himself. He was opening windows in order to draw attention to his God. Thirdly, we see here Daniel was in the habit of praying three times a day. Once again, not a practice that the Bible requires, but nevertheless an indication of how important prayer was to this very godly and disciplined man. Daniel's spiritual devotion embrace the New Testament principle that we as the people of God should pray without ceasing, or in other words, that we should be in a constant attitude of prayer and reliance on God. Fourthly, we see here that Daniel prayed with a thankful heart, not only asking God for the things that he wanted or needed, but also thanking God for who he was and for all that he had done. And finally, we observe that Daniel prayed on his knees, a posture of prayer that indicated an attitude of submission and humility before God. You know, friends, we don't need to take these specific details of Daniel's prayer life and his prayer posture and to turn them into some kind of inflexible law like the Muslims do. But we do need to learn from Daniel's example. We do, by God's grace, need to become disciplined and deeply committed to prayer. The Old Testament, Daniel, was widely known to be a great man of prayer. When we come to the New Testament, we realize that the same thing was true of the Lord Jesus, a man whose entire life and ministry was grounded and founded on the discipline of prayer. Very often in Jesus' ministry, we see him modeling prayer for the disciples, withdrawing to quiet places, taking time out of his busy schedule to remain in constant communication with the Father. 
Jesus modeled prayer for the disciples, but he also taught his disciples how to pray, giving them that masterful prayer as an example to follow what we often call today the Lord's Prayer. The prophet Daniel prayed during times of trouble and crisis in his life. We see the same impulse in Jesus' ministry, most notably the prayer that he offered up in the Garden of Gethsemane as he poured out his heart before the Father, preparing himself spiritually for the great trial that he was about to face. Remarkably, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus is still praying today that He ever lives to make intercession for us, His chosen people. Christian friends, if a righteous man like Daniel felt that it was necessary to pray three times a day, if a perfect and sinless man like Jesus prioritized prayer in every aspect of his earthly life and ministry, is it not a reasonable inference that we, the people of God, should be deeply committed to prayer as an ongoing discipline in our lives? That we, God's people in the new covenant, would demonstrate our humble reliance on the Lord through regular times of prayer, both personally in our homes, but also corporately in our churches. May God forgive us of prayerlessness. May He pour out upon the North American church a greater burden to pray, a greater awareness of our tremendous need for His grace and our total reliance upon Him. We're nearing the climax of the story now and the next way Daniel points us towards the coming of Christ is the punishment that he faced in submitting to the will of God. People who live in a fairly humane country, we may be a bit put off by the gruesome nature of Daniel's punishment. I think we do well to remember that this kind of thing is still happening in our world today. Just a couple years ago, it was widely reported in the news that Kim Jong-un, the tyrant of North Korea, murdered his own uncle by throwing him alive to the dogs. And more recently, that he arranged for the murder of his own brother with a chemical weapon. Atrocities of this kind are still being committed in our world and very often these crimes are being committed against the people of God. This is not a pleasant thing to think about, but it does remind us that apart from the grace of God in our lives, we human beings are capable of unspeakable cruelty. That in many ways, the world that we live in today is just as brutal and as wicked as it ever was. Back in his day, Daniel refused to be intimidated by the authorities. He refused to give up his regular practice of prayer. And for that reason, he was condemned to the lions. A punishment that deeply grieved the sympathetic king, but yet a punishment that could not be legally revoked. And so in verse 17, we read that a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And I wonder, friends, as you read that verse, whether you're reminded of anything else in the Bible. Certainly hope so, for in the New Testament, we read about another innocent man, a sinless man, who was unjustly condemned to die in the most cruel way, and then to be buried in a cave that was covered over with a large stone and sealed with the wax signet of the governor. The similarity between these two historical events is striking. I don't think for a moment that it's a coincidence. Brothers and sisters, when Daniel was thrown into the pit that night, when the stone was rolled over the entrance of the den, when the wax seal was put on the stone, nobody thought that they would ever see Daniel alive again, except perhaps for the king. 
From a human perspective, this Old Testament prophet was as good as dead. And the same thing can be said of the Lord Jesus when his lifeless body was placed into Joseph's tomb, when the stone was rolled over the entrance, and when the wax seal was affixed to the stone. The Jewish leaders thought they had won a great victory that day, but then something unbelievable happened. And that brings us to the last and the most important point of congruence between Daniel and Jesus. You know, it's somewhat humorous, I think, in our text that during the night that Daniel was thrown into the pit with the lions, nobody was interested in eating. Not the king in his palace, not the lions down in the den. It's also amusing that when Daniel was enjoying a restful evening down in the pit, the king was tossing and turning up in his luxurious palace. He was almost certainly sick with guilt, sick with remorse about what he had done. And then we read in verse 19 that at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. They have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he trusted in his God. Daniel's deliverance from the lions was nothing short of a miracle from God. It parallels the miracle we saw in chapter 2 when Daniel's three friends were brought alive through the fiery furnace. But even more remarkable than than this is that centuries after this incredible deliverance, a group of women got out of bed early in the morning. They went to the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid only to discover that the stone was rolled away, that the Lord was alive. He had risen from the dead. Miracle Daniel experience was tremendous, but it becomes even more amazing and meaningful when we realize what it was foreshadowing. It was foreshadowing the greatest miracle of all time, Christ's resurrection from the grave and the triumph of Christ over all of His enemies. You know, friends, we are not told in Scripture what parts of the Old Testament Jesus explained to those two discouraged men on the road to Emmaus. But one day when I talk to those guys in the kingdom, I've got a question to ask. Did he talk about Daniel? Did he talk about the lion's den? For truly, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the centerpiece of Scripture. More than that, Jesus is the centerpiece of history. And every single page of this inspired, inerrant book points us straight towards Him and His victory over sin and death and hell. One final observation I would commend to you this morning is the effect that Daniel's deliverance had on the Persian king. This was a man who saw God's mighty power at work and then responded to that power by proclaiming far and wide the good news of God's saving grace just as you and I have been commanded to do in the Great Commission. For indeed, as Darius said, the God we serve is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and He saves. Amen.